Good morning and happy Sabbath. Okay, there are way more people in here than actually said something. Good morning and happy Sabbath. <laughs> Either one was good. I want to take a moment to welcome our people that are joining us via live stream online. Welcome, happy Sabbath. We are glad that you are here. For those that are joining us in person, so glad to see your faces. We're glad that you are here too. Just a reminder that you can keep up with our, all of our activities that we are doing or any of our announcements on our website, so make sure that you are checking that. We also have an email that's going out, so if you're not on that, make sure that you uh, get connected that way. But welcome, we are glad to see you, and we're excited to worship with you. We're going to go ahead and get started this morning with prayer, so if you could bow your heads with me, please. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to say thank you. Thank you that we can be here together. Thank you that we can worship with you. And Lord, I'm just so thankful that we are a community of people that love you. I ask that you please be with Pastor Sergio today as he uh, gives us your message. And I ask that you please be with our worship, that we can praise you and bring honor to your name. In your name, amen. Welcome once again, and we're glad you're here. Let's get ready to worship.
Well, good morning, church. How are we doing? It's good to see so many of you out here. This is awesome. Good morning, church online. Great to see you guys, too. Actually, I can't see you, but you can see me. That's pretty cool. We are beginning our new series uh, today uh, about the life of Moses. Now, I'm really excited about this. We're going to be having, I believe it's 11 sermons on this, and uh, you're going to hear Pastor Fred preach, Pastor Larissa preach, Nancy preach, myself preach. We're going to be uh, dealing with this whole subject of this amazing leader who was a, really kind of the, the, most, the person that was the most type of Jesus uh, back in the Old Testament. So I'm excited. Are you ready to go with that? I'm excited. So in my, in my family, uh, when, when we were a, a young family and Brianna was just a, a, a tiny girl, I basically said, look, you know, I only have one commandment. That's it. I'm a pretty easy dad. And the commandment was absolutely no pets. No dogs, no cats, no birds, no fish, no hamsters, no rabbits, no, no crabs. Did I mention that already? No kangaroos and no elephants. That was it. And since my daughter was such a devoted and obedient child, we never had elephants as pets. We've had hamsters, and we've had crabs, and yes, we've had rabbits as pets. We've had cats, we've had fish, and believe it or not, we actually had a kangaroo for a little bit of time. And yes, we had dogs, six of them. Wolfie, who, that was the first dog, this we, we, I was actually doing an evangelistic series for a friend of mine down in North Carolina. And while I'm down there, uh, Nancy and Brianna go to some uh, flea market. They come back with this fur ball. It was the cutest little fur ball you could ever imagine. It was a dog, a puppy, that was three parts chow and one part timber wolf. Oh, yeah. And Brianna brings it in and just kind of flops it on my lap and says, look, Daddy, look what we have. And I'm like, oh, no. Like, we're going to leave this one in North Carolina. You know that, right? And I go to pick it up, and it's licking me, and it was the cutest thing, and that was it. From that point, it was love at first sight. So we had Wolfie. We had Sarge. That was an interesting dog. He was scared of me. We didn't keep him that long. We had Muffy. We had another dog. I can't think of the name because <laughs> I didn't like him. He didn't like me. And now we have Lucy, who probably has the best temperament of all the dogs. Can you imagine your daughter coming to you and saying, Hey, Dad, guess what? I have a Hebrew baby from the Nile. But don't worry, I'm actually pray, paying a Hebrew woman to nurse it. Well, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, so let's go back a little bit and then get to that point in history. We're actually going to start in Genesis chapter 50, beginning with verse 24, 24 through 26. Just to kind of give you a little bit of background of what's going on here, Genesis 50, 24 through 26, if you have your Bibles, if not, it should be on the screen. And it says this, then Joseph, you remember Joseph, don't you? Said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God surely will come to your aid. I'm about to die, but God surely will come to your aid. And take you up out of this land to the land that he promised an oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then he says, and Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath to, that, to him and said, look, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones, carry my bones from this place. So Joseph died, the Bible says, at the age of 110. God bless him, huh? And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt, and I want you to know those bones stayed in that coffin for 430 years. And the day came 
when they had to do something with those bones. During those 430 years, the Hebrews enjoyed the ride of their life on the open road. I mean, they were, they, everybody loved them because they were descendants of Joseph and their family, and everything was good. They prospered. But as always, this dark tunnel in time was coming. And Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, begins this dark time. Exodus 1, verse 8, says, Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing. 430 years later, right? Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. A new leader. Have you ever had, you had to work for a leader who does not know about you? Who you mean nothing to? A new leader that does not know about your accomplishments. A new leader that does not know about your strong commitment or dedication. A new leader that doesn't know about your strengths and your gifts. A new leader that doesn't know the circumstances that brought you to Egypt. A new leader that, that, that doesn't understand that, that great-great-great-grandpa played a major role in the survival of Egypt. Time goes by and people forget. Time goes by and people forget. And with every new pharaoh, there was a new history that was being rewritten. And in Exodus chapter 1, 8 through 10, let me read that for you right now. Uh, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. And this is what he says. He says, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Some of you may remember in the book of Genesis when God appears to Abraham, who is 90 years old. His wife is 90 years old. She's barren. And Abraham says, you know, I have no children. And if you remember, God says, come outside. He goes outside. He says, okay, I want you to look up in the stars. And he looks up and he says, he says, okay, I want you to count them. No, no, Abraham, that's a rhetorical thing I'm asking you to do. Because the stars were so numerous, he says, your people will be as numerous as the stars. Remember that? It's a wonderful promise. Well, it was happening here. And so Pharaoh says in verse 10, come, we must deal shrewdly with them, and they will become even more numerous. And if, we, if, if war breaks out, somehow he thought this, for some reason he, he figured this out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Not sure where he was getting that from. In Exodus chapter 1, 11 through 13 says, So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Python and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. Who? The Hebrew slaves. They were getting them to work really hard. They were trying to get to, to oppress them. I, maybe they thought, you know, if, I, if they're too tired for intimacy, you know. But of course, the more they were oppressed, the Bible says, the more they multiplied and spread. <laughs> and so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. And they worked them ruthlessly. That's what the Bible says. This was not a good time in the history of God's people. And all throughout history, there's been these moments of darkness, these moments of oppression, these moments where God's people are feeling like, is, is there any light at the end of the tunnel? Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever felt that way? It's like, is there any light at the end of this tunnel? Is there any hope? Is this our new normal? I can't stand up, by the way. So in verses 15 through 17, it says, The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, 
whose name were Shephara and Pua. Now, just so you know, these were Hebrews that were given Egyptian names, which meant that they were high-ranking, respected, and trusted followers, really, of Pharaoh, even though they were Hebrews. And when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. <laughs> the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. You know, there comes a point when loyalty can only go so far when it goes against your soul. And this is what was happening with these ladies. You know, they were trying to be loyal to, to Pharaoh. They were trying to do this. But it got to the point where they said, okay, you are going way too far. And so their loyalty stopped right there. You know, I want to talk a little bit about the courage of Shifara and Pua. Because they could have been executed by the wave of his hand. And most of us may never be faced with life or death situations like they did. However, I think it is safe to say that every one of us, at some point in our lives, will stand at a crossroad where a difficult decision is to be made where courage needs to be tapped into. God is asking, does anybody have the courage to act on my behalf these days? Is there anybody out there who will trust me more than the circumstances around them? No matter how dark the tunnel, is there anybody out there less interested in self-gain and self-preservation? Is there anybody out there that is going to, to, to be able to, to, to tap into that courage. To me, by the way, courage is a synonym for faith. I love the way Jesus says it, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life will save it, take up the cross, and follow me. We don't usually quote those kinds of quotes, right? Is there anybody out there secure enough to pursue a higher calling Last night, we had a meeting with Mosaic leaders, our young adult leaders. It was, it was wonderful. We spent some time in prayer. It's just a, just a wonderful thing. And, and this next generation, let me just tell you something. If you're part of this next generation of leaders of this church, God is searching for young, energetic, willing partners that he can shape into noble, compassionate, just leaders. And if there was ever a time that we need these kinds of leaders, today is the day. Young people willing to be stretched beyond their imagination to accomplish great things for God. So here's the question, young and old, children, elderly, are you willing to risk your comfortable life for God-sized assignments? Because that's what the book of Moses is all about, by the way. The whole book of Moses is about God's people inspired to get out of their comfort zone so that they can live what God asked them to live. Today, I think you would agree with me that the world is filled with leaders petrified by risk-taking. They consider, consider the pharaohs of this age formidable enemies that not even Christ can victoriously encounter. Fear of failure or personal loss paralyzes them. You can see them in every walk of life. Not Shephara and not Pua. I wonder where these women are today. I want to challenge us to pray for the kind of courage to accomplish God's will for the task that he will call you to, regardless who gets the applause. One of my favorite axioms, it's amazing what you can get done if you don't care who gets the credit nor the blame. Just like the great American theologian John Wayne said, courage is being scared to death but saddling up anyway, right? 
So in Exodus chapter 1, 18 through 22, the story continues. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? I love this little exchange right here. Why have you let the boys live? I told you what to do. The midwives answered Pharaoh, well, you know what? The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. It's not our fault. What I love about this verse is the very next word. So, because they lied? Or because they were so zealous for God's cause that they were willing to risk their lives? So, God was kind to the midwives. Isn't that beautiful? And the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy, you're going to learn something here for a moment, because there's a lesson that Pharaoh is not learning. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. <laughs> I don't know about you, but as I read the story, I think Pharaoh should be worried about the women, not the boys. Right? It's, it's, it's Moses' mom. It's Moses' sister. It's, his own, it's Pharaoh's uh, daughter. Right? This, this triad of, of women that come together and somehow save Moses. It's not the boys you got to worry about. Now we get into Exodus chapter 2. And we begin to see the emergence of this great leader just as a baby. Exodus 2, 1 through 4, it says, Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now, I've read this before, and I thought, like, what is he, good-looking, or is he, like, what is it about him that makes him a fine child? Now, I want to remind you of something. From the moment that Eve was promised a Savior, every believing mother was hoping that their son would be the Savior, that their son would be the Messiah to come. Every, every woman in Israel, every woman, just every time there was a, a birth, they're like, could this be the one? Could this be, could this be the one? And I believe what's happening here is that, that Moses' mom sees Moses and says, this could be the one. There's something about this little boy that I'm inspired to somehow risk my life to save this boy. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus, papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it. At this point, the child is just called the child. And put him among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. And then there's like, like a little plan here. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him, right? So you get the picture? Mom takes the baby, can no longer hide him because the baby's crying too much. He's a little older now, right? So she takes the baby, puts him in the basket, sneaks up to the river among the reeds, puts the basket in there, and then says, okay, Miriam, you go ahead and you look out, see what happens. I love what happens next. While Satan is inspiring Pharaoh to exterminate the Israelites, the God of heaven is actually working behind the scenes in preparing to liberate them. Isn't that cool? See, every time we think something bad is about to happen, every time we think things are getting really, really bad, I want to remind you of something. God is working behind the scenes to do something amazing. 
it's so hard for us to see it from this perspective. I mean, think about it from the perspective of, of, of looking at it. If you ever saw a, 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 a wonderfully uh, hand-stitched, um, oh, I don't know what you call those things, uh, embroiders, right? If you look at the back of it, it looks ugly as can be. It's like, what is all that, right? But on the other side, it's gorgeous. See, God sees it from that side. We see it from the underside. There was a poem, my life is about a weaving, right? Between my God and I. I may not see the colors, but I trust in him. Exodus 2, 5 through 8, or 5 through 9, actually. It says, Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. This is Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh, by the way, was considered a god in Egypt, not just a king. He was the god. So this is the, the, the daughter of the god. She was, saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. Of course, he was crying. And she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister, Miriam, right, she was looking around, asked Pharaoh's daughter, hey, how about I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Don't read this as some kind of history lesson. I mean, think about the courage, the risk, the moment that this happens. Don't lose sight of what. Can you? I imagine Miriam's heartbeat just going like, I hope this works. Yes! Yes! She says, go! So the girl went and got the baby's mother. <coughs> Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. Wow. This is a great deal. So the woman took the baby and nursed him and when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. Hey daddy, guess what? I got a Hebrew baby from the Nile. He's growing up. Don't worry. I had a Hebrew mom nurse him. So she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Moses. So Moses is rescued from the water. And what's really interesting to not miss here is that his first formative years he was with his mom. She was diligent and careful to impress Moses with the fact that he was being rescued for a purpose. I'm sure that she gave him history lessons on Joseph's faithfulness and how the people of Israel had gotten there about the God of Israel that watched over him. I bet they prayed together all the time during the formative years. Raise up a child in the way that they should go, and when they get older, what? They will not depart from it. The powerful virtues of truth and justice and love until the day she gave him up to his adoptive royal mom. From that moment on, he began to be educated in the Egyptian ways. And it, it doesn't matter where you're from or what you do, but if you get thrown into that situation, you are influenced by wealth, by power. Forty years go by. Forty years. 
go by. And then one day, Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, say one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were. There must have been something deep down inside of him. And, he, and, and he's there and he's looking at them and watch them at their hard labor. There must have been things that he remembered. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. One of his own people, the Bible says. And looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and he hid him in the sand. There are two things that I want to just quickly grab from this little moment here. The Bible says that he looked this way and that. And he saw no one. He should have been looking up. So many times we look this way and that. And we're like, all right, how, this is this going to work? Is this, can this make it? So many times this way and that. And we fail to look up. And the next thing you should learn, which is really important, and you'll notice this really come alive in the next few moments, is that hiding the wrong doesn't erase it. I'll never forget, I was 16 years old and stupid. Now I'm 60 years old and stupid, but no. I was... I had no idea who Christ was. I'm just going to be very vulnerable and honest with you guys. And uh, I, was, I was influenced by some friends to break into somebody's house and rob five pounds of marijuana. And I was the stupidest one of all because I was the one that was asked to actually be the one that actually got into the house got the stuff, and came out. Somebody else was driving, the other person was the lookout, you know. And I'll never forget the adrenaline. 16 years old, total stupidity here. The adrenaline, I look this way and that. I don't even know about looking up. I have no idea. I'm just looking this way and that. I don't see anybody. And I break into the house, into the window. Nobody's there, and I'm looking for where I could find it. I just found a little bit of of pot. I don't even find that much, but I put it in my coat. I run out the window. I run to the car. We go and we party until Kojak knocks on my door. And if you don't know who Kojak is, those of you who are a little younger, let me tell you. It's a police officer. I should say police officers. I'll never forget that moment when those police officers came to my house. My mom had no clue. My brother said, sir, there are police officers downstairs that want to talk to you. I knew exactly what was going on. I can never forget the embarrassment and the, the feeling, the ugly feeling I had inside as I walked out of my house in my neighborhood, in New Rochelle, New York, where my neighbors and my family had, had, had a reputation, and, and they're handcuffing me. And they take me. And here's what had happened. Someone from my high school had seen me and told on me. They had already arrested the other two guys. And I'm sitting there trying to lie my way through this. I'll never forget my dad coming in with this very well-dressed lawyer. And my friends spent a night in jail. I didn't spend any night in jail because this lawyer was good. And I ended up getting off with just trespassing, believe it or not, because this lawyer was good. You want to know why this lawyer was good? Because my dad, even though I made this huge mistake, loved me. And he spent every penny that he had saved up to get the best lawyer that he could get. That changed me. I'll never forget walking out of that precinct. Terrified, because I knew Dad was, you know, Dad was in 
old school immigrant from Italy, you know, and certainly had no problem using the belt. So I'm thinking, I'm going to get home. I'm going to get it, you know. But I'll never forget walking out of that precinct and my dad puts his arm around me. He says, how you doing? I was like, oh, Dad, I'm so sorry. I start crying. He says, it's okay. We'll work through this. Your mama is another thing. <laughs> Exodus chapter 2, 13 through 15, it says, the next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you kill the Egyptian? What? You saw that? And then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Suddenly his whole life changes. This is the point of no return. And I tell you, when those moments come in our lives, we could do one of two things. We could either just have our own little self-pity party, or we can say, God, what have I done, and how do I change? Those moments of truths come when we realize I've blown it. This is me. I've, I've lost something. And now he had all this wealth and all this power and all this stuff, and now he's got nothing. This rush of memories come in. He couldn't help himself. Woven in the fabric of who he was was what caused him to, to strike this man. But it was, it was anger. There was there are three signs I want to do real quick for you right now. Three signs of a God-intended wilderness experience. If you've ever had a wilderness experience, raise your hand. If you ever had a wilderness experience, if you ever had an experience where you feel like, what am I doing here? What's going on? What is God wanting to do with my life? Have you ever had that? I have. Three signs I want to tell you. Sign number one, the people who used to trust you no longer do. The royal court is stunned. What has come over Moses? He seems restless. He's spending too much time with the slaves. He's a Hebrew. He's a spy. Who is he kidding? Sign number two. Are you ready? Sign number two is the activities that used to be fun and pleasurable fade away. There must have been something during that time that caused them to go and visit the, the Hebrews. His, his appetite began to change in those moments in Egypt towards the end. His hunger for justice and freedom began to grow. He began to realize that the world is broken. How many of you have gotten to the point where you realize the world is broken? It may look nice and we could, we could put... Band-aids on it with wealth and power, but the world is still broken. The niceties of his birth country were no longer fulfilling. And as the shadow deepened, he hoped that there was more to life than that. In fact, the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, 24 through 27 puts it this way. By faith, remember the by faith series we did? By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Can you believe that? He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt. It was an act of what? Faith, believe it or not. By faith, he left Egypt, 
not fearing the king's anger, he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. In other words, he saw somebody that was greater than Pharaoh. He experienced somebody that was greater than Pharaoh. And maybe what we need to do if we are in the wilderness is to experience God in our lives so that he, we, we are convinced that he is greater than anybody else, than anything else, than any circumstance. <coughs> and then finally, sign number three. We're almost done here. Sign number three, that you are in the wilderness experience because God has initiated this. And, and, and here it comes. Your weaknesses and character, your weaknesses and character flaws, I should say, become glaringly obvious to you. See, I think when Moses was in the wilderness, he began to realize he had an anger problem. Now, you... In those days, you just couldn't go to anger therapy. You know what I mean? Like, this was just not, not available in those days. But God was doing his work, wasn't he? Moses realized that he was impatient. Moses realized that he was impulsive, that he was reckless. It took the wilderness years to do that. See, I believe the wilderness is that place between my past and my future. That place between my past and my future. It is that the wilderness is, uh, is that school that shapes us from which we never graduate. So the Bible says that Moses rescues Jethro's daughter. Moses marries Jethro's daughter. His name, her name was Zipporah. It's a wonderful story. If you read it there in Exodus 2, Moses has a child. Time goes by in the wilderness. Forty additional years. Here's a leadership lesson for those of you who care about leadership. God prepared Moses to lead the Hebrews out of Egypt not in a day, but over time, some of us want to just be leaders. But leadership is never by position. Leadership is always by permission. Not through an event, but through a process. You can't just go to a leadership event and say, oh, Great, I learned so much. I'm a leader now. No. I'll never forget teaching Brianna how to ride a bike. Some of you dads might have done this with your daughters or your sons, where you, you have her on the bike and you're holding the bike as she's pedaling, right? You ever done this? And then you let go of the handlebars, but you're still holding this, right? Dad, are you still holding? I'm still holding, honey. It's all good. And you're walking with her, right? And you're just holding the bike. And then at some point, you let go, but you keep walking. Like she thinks you're still holding it. Uh, next week, we're going to have a peak. We're going to eavesdrop in the moment where God lets go. He says, all right, now you know how to drive. Now you know how to ride. God prepares leaders in a crock pot, not in a microwave. You understand what I'm saying to you? And the most difficult lesson for us as leaders is what we learn on the way is just as important as a destination. Let me finish with these last verses. Exodus chapter 2, 13 through 15. It goes like this. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And we're going to find out next week what he does because of that. Don't you miss it. Do you, like Moses, feel like the world is broken to you? Do you feel like the shadow is deepening? 
Do you know that all the dark won't stop Jesus' awesome light from getting through? Do you know that? doesn't matter how dark. In fact, the darker it is, the better it is if you watch for God's light. Do you have this desire that you could see it all made new? I do. As we study the book of Moses, we will see God's amazing way of rescuing us from the shadows. Amen. He 
Let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you for reminding us that you are worthy, and you are large and in charge, and you could break the bonds of any slavery. Lord, we are looking forward to knowing and understanding more of the life of Moses. There's so much in there. We pray, Father, that as we continue through this process, that, that you would open up some, some things in our hearts, help us to realize, help us to go through our wilderness time, to realize our issues, our situation, help us to grow as leaders, and more than that, Lord, help us to have the courage to step out of our comfort zone and do what we need to do. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Church, have a wonderful Sabbath. We'll be here next Sabbath. And thank you so much for being here uh, live. And thank you, Online Church, for being here, joining us. Uh, it's exciting to see what God is doing here. May God bless you. See you next week.